to thank you for joining us for this episode of Just Another Conspiracy Show with your host, Jeff Williams. This week's topic was suggested, in part, by IT from a View from Space Forums on Facebook. I'm only using the first initials of his name to ensure his anonymity. After all, we know strange things tend to happen to those who delve too deeply into the mysteries of the Illuminati. And this week, we're going to be looking at fractional reserve banking. It is a hot topic. These days, people are becoming more and more aware that the institutions that run our economy are less and less attached to the people that they supposedly serve. It's just a fact of life that everything's getting more expensive these days. Packages are getting smaller, items are getting more expensive, and yet somehow workers' wages are not going up. If you're a French fry cook, truck driver, or pretty much anything short of an executive, you haven't seen an appreciable raise in years. It's something of a truism that the best way to get a raise is to find another job rather than wait for your company to give you your yearly increment. Even if you're one of the stars of your team, the harder workier you are doesn't necessarily translate into more money in your pocket. And since corporations keep telling us that they are not making money and cannot afford to pay more wages to their workers, we have to, once again, follow the money and find out where the money is going. The fact is, virtually all the money in the world eventually goes through a bank. Now, it might be a bank, might be a trust corporation, might be a credit union, but whatever you call it, it's essentially a financial institution that for most of this episode we'll refer to as a bank. The economy has a few sides, and Banks serve the monetary side of the economy. You see, with manufacturing, distribution, all those different sides, they all will always need access to financing sooner or later. Financing comes through transactions. Whenever Pearson makes a transaction, it is being financed by one of the major financial institutions which you will find are all actually closely allied and not even trying to compete with each other. If a company tries to bring out a new line of products or expand its distribution, it needs access to money, to capital. And to get access to that capital, to the money, they'll need to deal with a bank. Now, you can still deal in cash for small items, packet of potato chips, cup of coffee, little things like that. 
but for most major purchases, we have moved away from cash as a medium of transaction. It's nearly at the point where you can't even buy a tank of gas without carrying around a dangerous amount of money in your wallet. Or at least that's the perception. You see, cash itself is a reification, something that gets value simply because we as human beings agree to assign value to it. It has value simply because we believe in it. What makes those pieces of paper more meaningful than the one in your printer? Well, it's the symbolism behind them. See, there's a little government mark in the corner that says it's legal tender. Now, that's a magical phrase, one that has absolutely zero substance. But the phrase legal tender means that piece of paper stands in as representative of wealth, wealth accumulated through wages, labor, or whatever it might be. But you can then exchange that piece of paper, that wealth, for whatever goods and services you happen to be interested in purchasing or obtaining. Now, in the modern world, <clears throat> more and more, people are abandoning cash. They have no reason to carry it on them. It's too easily stolen, too easily lost, and too easily spent frivolously. I'm, sh I'm sure all of us are guilty of that. Ah, it's only a buck. I've got a dollar in my pocket. Sure, I'll buy that piece of gum, cup of coffee, whatever it might be. It it's only a dollar. I don't need to worry about it. Then at the end of the week... Huh, I went through $20 this week just in silly stuff. We've all been there. But people are abandoning cash. Um, it's at the point where people carrying large quantities of cash at them are suspicious. Because they obviously must be using it for illicit transactions like purchasing drugs or prostitution or other services that don't take Interact and they don't take Visa. So much for that old commercial. So, since there are so many alternative ways of carrying purchasing power with you, debit cards, credit cards, PayPal wallets, which are actually available as an app for your cell phone, cash has already started to be stigmatized. Oh, how can you carry that much cash on you? You must be insane. I'm sure you've heard this more than once in your time. And even private corporations are getting in on the cashless game. Coffee companies push their refillable cards, so that way you don't need to carry cash. And, of course, psychologically, it doesn't really feel like you're spending money when all you do is tap a card on the machine, boop, and someone hands you your beverage or meal of choice. Major corporations like... Let's just call them the realtors so I don't pick on anybody in particular because they're all guilty of it. They sell <clears throat> billions, if not trillions, in gift certificates around every single holiday, birthday, etc. Round the year, they're punching these things out, left, right, and center. And one set of statistics shows that 70% of these gift certificates never, ever get redeemed. So... Corporations love gift certificates, free money for them. And, once again, it's found a reason to replace cash in someone's wallet, because if you do have a gift certificate, you're unlikely to be carrying much cash with you when you go to use it. So, <clears throat> the other thing is the major banks have stigmatized cash so much that 
despite the fact they have insane services for you to access the money that you have invested with them. That is your money that you have agreed to give to them. But to access it, you're going to have to pay their fee, be it a dollar, two dollars, whatever it might be. If you had cash at hand, you wouldn't be paying any fee. You would be taking it out of your wallet, exchanging it for the goods or service that you desire, and walking away. There isn't a middleman saying, I want my dollar out of that transaction. Nope, no such thing with cash. Imagine that, somebody following you around, and every time you reach out of your wallet, they would reach into your back pocket and pull out a dollar. It'd be pretty weird, but this is what the major banks are doing every time they charge a service fee. <clears throat> Most have reached the point that they will waive a large majority of their transaction fees for the individual consumer, but the fact is, all they're doing is tacking on the charges that they were giving to you to the, the retailer, the service provider, whoever it is that is taking your money. So they've made it a hidden fee. And of course, the retailer tacks it on to the price of their items. So you don't see this tax that's going on. But the fact is, your money is still being out of taking, is still being taken out of your pocket. Again, the little man is sitting next to you. And every time you reach for your wallet and you pull out a card, he swipes a dollar. So the financial elite have shown that they're not particularly concerned with your interests. They are taking your interests and making money off them, but they've managed to isolate themselves from your ability to influence them. You see, for years, there was a concern that banks would have to keep a particular amount of cash on hand so that they could satisfy the consumers in case they ever decided to withdraw more money than was available. This started back in ancient times, but in modern times, the amount of cash that a bank would have to have on hand in a branch was has been regulated by the government. And over the years, it's gone down and down and down from a real percentage to a fraction of a percent. Hence why it's called fractional reserve banking. Whatever reserves the bank might have, let's just say your local branch has a hundred million in assets when you tally up everything, they would only be required to keep maybe $10,000 on hand and any sort of coin, money, whatever it is. Because the idea is everyone's not going to come in and look for cash. Not everyone wants cash on a given day. They want transactions done. Absolutely, transactions are the cornerstone of the banking institution. But as far as cash goes, nobody wants that anymore. Like I said, it's too easily stolen, it's too easily lost, and it's just too much of a hassle to have around. And this so far has worked out well for everybody. For banks can take their reserves, the cash that you deposit, be it physical cash or whatever it is, and they transfer that money to a central repository. Um, the central repository basically keeps things safe because individual banks know they are targets. Bank robberies still happen to the current day where I am broadcasting from a bank not too far from here 
was hit twice within a week by a very similar, if not the same, man. And this is not a major bank. This is not a high crime area that I live in. Thank goodness for that. But the fact is, it's a little bank. Two times somebody robbed it in the same week. Bank robberies have become the stuff of legends from Billy the Kid to Ocean's Eleven. And that is why banks want to move their resources to essential deposits and have minimum cash on hand. You haven't seen this sign at banks very much, but I'm sure you've seen them in convenience stores and perhaps even major retailers where it says, you know, cashier only has $50 and has no access to the safe, whatever it might be. Well, the same is very true of banks. The cashiers do have more money at their disposal, but it's much better protected. So were you to rob a bank, you'd probably be lucky to get away with $5,000 unless you had a rather elaborate plan like in the movies. But as we know, life isn't like in the movies. And there's more at risk to banks than simply somebody walking in, rooting, tooting, shooting his guns off, saying, give me all your money. Nope. The truth is, there's a real physical threat from people. And this is what has always been the concern with the, fi with the fractional reserve system. Because banks only have to keep such a small percentage of the money available locally, the idea is there might be a bank run. Now, in the 1930s, for example, during the Great Depression, while banks were running a much better fraction as far as fractional reserve, meaning they had much more cash on hand, when people heard a bank might be going under, there were what were called bank runs, where everybody would try to get in the bank and get their money out because they knew the bank wouldn't be replenished for a day, a week, a month, and you wouldn't be able to get your, get your money out. But in the modern day and age, this is becoming increasingly unlikely, almost laughably so. Since cash has been discouraged as a medium of exchange, and most people use debit or credit, the danger is almost all but mistake, all but extinct. And even if a huge amount of people decided to take all their money out at once, perhaps as a protest, perhaps in response to an economic crisis, the banks have the logistical capability to simply move enough money around by armored trucks to cover the deficiencies until they repl they replenished all of their supplies. Uh, you see. You and I, the people the banks supposedly serve, are no longer their target market. They moved beyond that years ago. The second they were able to do the big swap and make people interested in cards at, rather than cash. And fractional reserve banking is here to say because the banks no longer deal in cash. They deal in credit. They deal in capital. Now, I'm sure most of the listeners that, I, that are out there have had a loan, be it for a car, be it for a house, be it your credit card. Whatever your reason for having the loan might be, the banks didn't take an amount of money and put it in an account. No, they sat down at a computer, tap, 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 poof, and the money literally appeared out of thin air. They aren't sitting there and handing you $10,000 in cash to go buy that car. They're giving you a credit notice, a money order, or a similar statement that says you have access to X amount of money. We'll stick with $10,000 for clarity.
No currency is issued, no money handed over, and as a matter of fact, the government issued bills with their little legal tender stamp on them are completely eliminated from the situation. That's because the nation's real currency, the real money, are controlled by central banks. Now, the United States Central Bank is among the most notorious in the world because the United States resisted a central bank for so long. As a matter of fact, they only adopted it in 1913. And the fact is, the United States is pretty much the world's superpower, both in military and economic matters. Its central bank is wholly controlled by interests that do not suit the U.S. national interest. The curious little fact is that the U.S. pilots, the U.S. Air Force's pilots, have survival kits. Now, when they're down behind enemy lines, they reach into those survival kits. Of course, they'll find the usual, some water, some food, some stuff to keep them going. But there's also two United Kingdom gold sovereign coins. That's right. The U.S. Air Force does not issue U.S. currency to its pilots, but that of a foreign nation. Since the U.S. Air Force was only incorporated as a separate service after World War II, we can't put this down to tradition. If it was a Navy or Army or similar institution that had been around for centuries, you might be able to say, ah, this is just people following tradition, but no. This is done in a modern environment, and it's done for a very specific reason. The British gold sovereign is preferred over the U.S. Golden Eagle because there's a distinct relationship between the U.S. Central Bank and the U.K.'s Crown Bank. The United Kingdom Crown Bank is superior to the United States Central Bank. That's why it's issued to the pilots, because they know it'll be accepted in more places. And in fact, the US, U.S. financial institutions rarely rate very highly worldwide. The old guard banks are far more recognized and do much more business than the upstart U.S. competitors. See, the Bank of England, the Crown Bank, whatever you want to call it, was founded in 1694 and is the second oldest central bank, only after the Swedish central bank. So in 1913, when the central bank was founded in the United States, it already had solid antecedents in its European cousins. When they put the U.S. central bank together, it was put together with the full knowledge and experience of what needed to be done from centuries of European banking. They knew what needed to be done. They needed what had to happen. Now, the central banks are the ones that set the rules for fractional reserve currency. How much money each bank has to keep on it as compared to how much it theoretically controls. And they actually do much more than, than simply regulate how much interest is the lowest that one bank can pay you another. Oh, that. Perhaps you've heard of the prime rate. Yes, the prime rate is the interest rate at which banks lend money to each other. So the prime rate is their rock bottom floor of how much they have to pay to get the money they need to service whatever they loan to you. So when you apply for your $10,000 loan, they have their, say, 2% prime rate. That's what they're getting at when they turn around and charge you 
Now, perhaps you might put your mind back a few years to 2008 and the subprime mortgage fiasco. This is where we start to really see where, where fractional reserve banking comes into play. You see, banks were turning around and giving money out at less than prime rate. Think about that. If it costs them 2%, I'm just going to use 2% as an example. I didn't look up prime today. I apologize for that. But if it costs them 2% to get the money that they need to loan to you, why would they loan it to you 1.5%? If there is one thing you can say about banks, they are wonderful at turning profits. So why on earth would they loan less than what is profitable? Why would they take a loss on your mortgage? Well, the fact is they're not taking a loss on your mortgage. As much as they cried foul and wolf and all the horrible things that happened 2008, the fact is they were still making money. Even when they're giving you a lower rate than what they're getting, they take the money that they've loaned to you and turn around and package that as a risk. They sell that risk or a stake in the risk to, well, basically shareholders. And that way there's, if you take a whole package, there's less risk that the whole package of 100 people are all going to default on their loans. You might get one or two, but overall that package is going to make money. Now this is what's called derivatives. Now the derivative market is really what's keeping the economy going. Not when you and I buy, not what you and I invest in, but rather what banks and financial institutions choose to invest in. Like I said, two levels to the economy. There's the game that we play when we go to Starbucks, when we go to Tim Hortons, when we go to McDonald's, whatever we do, that's the level we're at. While the banks are playing a completely separate game. We're sitting down at the poker table with a couple white chips, and they're just sitting down with a single card that says, valid for anything. And that's why their economy keeps going up, while your economy and my economy has not changed in decades. This disconnect has been going on for a while. The pretend economy, where you and I make a few bucks doing our various jobs, is really nothing more than an illusion to keep you and I happy because they know that we need a little bit of money to keep going while they make their trillions. And even better, if they lose anything, the government's going to have to bail them out. So when you think about it, fractional reserve banking is really not a risk. Not when you're really gambling on the big chips. I mean, who cares you're going to be out a couple hundred dollars at a local institution when the overall bank is raking in billions? They don't care about you, your investments. Psh, go ahead. Threaten to pull your business. Even if you're a millionaire, they will not sweat that loss one bit. Well, perhaps your agent might, whoever it is that you deal with as the manager at the bank, but uh, ultimately, they're not really that dependent on your account. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I explained what an actuary was. And basically, an actuary buys and sells stakes in individuals, corporations, and other packages based on their predictions of the futures. So, an actuary is the one who makes the decision about which packages of derivatives to buy and which to stay away from. Virtually every single actuary, 
was heavily into derivatives, which is what happened in 2008, the big stock market crash and everything else that happened. And they basically trade commodities like you and I. Oh, you are a commodity. You just don't know it. Actuaries trade commodities like you and I to people who are interested. Well, people's the wrong word to use in this situation. Let's say entities that are interested in you or rather the financial presence that you make. You see, again, once you yourself are taken into the big financial equation, you're a drop in the bucket, or rather a drop in the ocean. But if they can package you up without you knowing and sell you as part of a package, you suddenly become interesting when you're worth a package worth a billion. Now, you and I, as, as my listener, as myself, through our entire life, will highly unlikely see a billion. And on the off chance, if you are listening and you are a billionaire, I would love to hear some feedback from you. But the most important thing is while actuaries are making these calls, and believe me, it takes intense training and study to become an actuary. I actually have seen part of the book the actuaries have to study, and it gives me a headache. A person I knew was studying it, and yeah, they work really hard for their money. So if you are an actuary, don't think for a moment I'm accusing you of being sinister. I'm saying what your job is and what it really boils down to. However, actuaries are starting to lose ground to computers because programs are becoming smarter and smarter, and they're able to react faster than even the most brilliant, intuitive actuary can do. The best wheeler dealers, the best stock gamblers, they all have programs on their sides. And the reason that these things are becoming increasingly automated is because computers are considered to be more efficient than people. The financial elite and the Illuminati are of the opinion that individuals don't matter and that you, yourself, your consciousness, your free will does not exist. That's right, not that it's irrelevant to them, that you do not exist as an independent entity. You were programmed by genetics, by your environment, to tune in and listen to this show today. Now, you and I are quite aware that that's not true, and this will be a thread that we take up in another time. But at the moment, the point is that central banks are being increasingly run by computers. These computer-run central banks are almost entirely divorced from the economy that you and I are involved in. They make their own rules, they make their own interest rates, and they could care less about fractional reserve banking because they've already ensured no real cash is involved in any, mail tr any major transaction. It's taken them decades to accomplish, but it's been accomplished within our lifetime, and this fact is only speeding up. It is coming, and with that we face a dire reality. If we are not part of the economy, what role do we have to play? We'll continue this narrative in the next show in exploring how the Illuminati thinks, as demonstrated by their financial workings and the conclusion that we will face will be slightly frightening. Now, we can work together to understand the fraud that is going on, but only if we stand up and make ourselves accounted for in the works of the criminal globalist oligopolies. Stand Up, of course, is the theme music of this show, performed by Pipe Choir, and their anthem is always played with reverence and gratitude. 
Special thanks to IT from A View From Space Facebook group, and indeed the group as a whole, for their support of just another conspiracy show. Spooky, Weird, and Cool Facebook group has always been essential to this show's success, and so a big salutation for their continued support. A reminder that if you enjoy this show, more works are available through Amazon Kindle. Cemetery Island by Jeff Williams is a suspenseful tale of how a young man finds himself in the clutches of a mental hospital who has plans for his treatment that are very sinister indeed. Secrets of Solomon by, uh, by Jeff Williams is also available through Amazon Kindle, and it's an expose on the life of ancient Israel's famous king. And within the coming weeks, Age of Ashes will be available to him, and it would mean so much to this show and this house if you would give it your support as well. But most importantly, thank you for inviting just another conspiracy show into your home this week, with the promise we'll return next week to continue the story.